forget to uh, announce uh, the stores had a, a grandchild this week, and, and uh, Mallory, who, who comes here, and uh, Andrew, they welcomed their son Ezekiel uh, on the 7th of this month. So, um, and I know that we've got others due shortly uh, in the next few weeks here, so keeping the momentum going um, for Wellspring Kids. So uh, I was teasing uh, Dave when he sent me the song list for this week. I'm like, are we singing an acoustic set? He's like, he's like, no, we have a full band. I'm just, I just kind of want to do the emotional stuff this week. And I'm like, okay. So I don't know if Dave, Dave needs a hug or what's going on, but uh, it was just a funny, funny little interaction. So those of you maybe that are just visiting with us this morning, we are in the middle of a story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And his life story, as it's recorded in the Bible, takes about 13 chapters. So we are kind of neck deep in the middle of this sordid tale. And as we've mentioned, Joseph is a type of Christ, which means that the, the life that he lived was a foreshadowing of the kind of Savior that Jesus would be when he came to earth one day. Um, he was chosen uh, to be his father's favorite. And we talked about um, how that kind of precipitated a little bit of a rough go for him in his life because his dad uh, kind of set him apart from the 11 other brothers that he had, uh, first of all, by making him this richly ornamented robe that he wore around all the time. So he was kind of a pretty boy in his multicolored uh, jacket there. Um, and his brothers obviously didn't take to that well. In addition to that, Joseph um, had this ability to have dreams and interpret dreams. And so, I'm sorry, everybody's so torn up about our service today. So. <laughs> um, so Joseph had had these dreams where it said that one day all of his brothers, even his parents, were going to bow down before him. And so he chose to share that out loud with his family, in which they didn't respond very well to that. And so as the story goes, when Joseph was 17, he came out to visit his brothers in the field uh, to check in on them, and they decided to kill him. And so they, they leave him in the bottom of this empty well for dead. Um, then the plan got disrupted a little bit because these travelers started coming. They thought, this is going to be awkward. We're just sitting here. He's screaming for his life, and we're eating our lunch. So they thought, let's just come up with a different plan. So they thought, let's just get him out, and we'll sell him to this traveling party going to Egypt, and we'll just sell him as a slave to them. So that's kind of what happens to him. So once Joseph gets to Egypt, his story is just a bunch of ups and downs. Um, he's initially purchased by an Egyptian official named Potiphar, and um, through just his kind of faithful service, he, he rises and gets more and more responsibility in his household. Um, but then Potiphar's wife accuses him, falsely accuses him of rape and kind of sets him up, and he ends up getting thrown into prison. Um, so seemingly kind of abandoned by God. And then there's this twist in the story again where the Pharaoh is having these dreams and nobody can tell him what they mean. And, and somebody's like, oh, that Joseph guy in prison, he can interpret dreams. And so he, he goes and tells the Pharaoh what his dreams mean. And Pharaoh is pleased by that. And, and he elevates Joseph to basically like second in command in the whole country, kind of like prime minister of Egypt. 
And so in the course of about 13 years, from the age of 17 to the age of 30, Joseph has literally gone from the penthouse to the outhouse and back to the penthouse. It's just been this crazy ride that he's been on. God has never forgotten Joseph. His path just included some suffering, just like Jesus' path did as well. And that suffering was there in order to make him a man that was tested and had proven himself faithful. And as we've looked at the story, we've seen that through all the trials and tribulations, Joseph never grows bitter. He never rejects God. He never plots revenge against his brothers or, or ever plays the victim card. All of the traps that usually kind of trip most of us up in those situations. Now, the dream that Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh was a warning that the land of Egypt was getting ready to go through seven years of abundance with their crops, followed by seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh says, okay, Joseph, since you're kind of, you've got the beat on what's going on here, I'm going to put you in charge of the collection of food and the distribution of food during this really critical time in our history. And here is where... Joseph's story with his family kind of reconnects. So I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, almost two full chapters of this story. So in Genesis 41, starting in verse 56, the very end there. It says, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So we see that the, the famine has spread to Joseph's family in Canaan, or what's kind of modern day Israel as well. And Joseph is now kind of the, the funnel through which all requests for food have to come through. He has to approve who gets it, how much they get. Um, so he's got this very powerful, tremendous responsibility. And we see this little funny interaction here between Jacob and his sons, right? The sons know that there's food in Egypt. Jacob knows that there's food in Egypt. And he's like, what are we waiting on? And, and the problem is, the, the reason why they're not moving is because these brothers have this unbelievable guilty conscience, right? They, they remember every time the word Egypt is mentioned, they remember Man, we were not very kind to Joseph. They've kind of got this blood on their hands of their brother. But this situation is just so desperate that they really don't have any other options. And so they set off on their journey. And as I was thinking about this, <clears throat> I was thinking, you know, isn't it interesting how God often orchestrates circumstances to put us back in places where we have to deal with our past. Because he knows that unless we do, we'll be enslaved to our guilt, 
or our shame or our bitterness or anger or whatever emotions are swirling around to that. And his desire for all of us is that we would always be moving towards healing and towards freedom. It's like when we've had a difficult run-in with somebody and and there's some hurt feelings and maybe some unresolved tension, right? And you just kind of go around St. Joe or wherever town you live in just kind of hoping you don't bump into those people. And inevitably what happens, right? You turn the corner in your, your shopping cart and bam, there they are. Your arch nemesis, right? And you lock eyes and you're trapped. <laughs> and this conversation is happening whether you want it to or not. And the awkward dance begins, right? Who's, who's taking the first step? And has anybody been there? Had that situation happen? Yeah. Now listen, if I can see that person from a distance and we don't lock eyes, you better believe I'm heading for the door. And I've done that. Anybody else done that before? He's like, ah, oh, not today. I'm out. I can shop later, right? But God has a way of bringing these things around because he doesn't want us to live in that place where we're avoiding people and not dealing with issues. So he's bringing it around for these brothers again. Let's look at verse 3. It says, Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Can you all imagine this scene? I mean, when you read stories like this in Scripture, you know, instead of rushing through it, you really need to kind of take a minute to kind of picture what this must have been like and the emotion that must have been packed in. I mean, 20 years have passed since he'd seen these brothers that sold him away as a slave and told their father that he was dead. Think about the weight of the emotion in that moment. And it says that they bowed down before him. And in that moment, all of those old dreams that Joseph had kind of came back And everything that they had done to Joseph up to that point had set in motion the fulfillment of that dream that was happening right then. Many years ago, the brothers had tried to beat God. They tried to thwart, right, those dreams that he had given Joseph about their future status, his future status as a leader over them. But guys, this should come as no surprise to you. God always wins. He's undefeated, right? makes me wonder, why, why do we fight with him? Why do we continue to disobey? Why do we drag our feet? Why do we look for some other or easier way when God has clearly called us to move in a certain direction in our life? Why do we think we can barter with him? 
or, or, or sneak up on him in some way or change his mind. And this interaction is really interesting. It says that, that Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And it had been 20 years, okay? And, and Joseph, as a high-ranking Egyptian official, probably has one of those cool headdresses on, you know, we see on the mummies, and he's probably got one of those long goatees, you know, and gold bands around, whatever. I mean, he's speaking Egyptian as well, okay? And, and, and in the brothers' wildest dreams, they never could have imagined that when they sold him into slavery 20 years ago, that he would now be this important government official with so much responsibility. I mean, that was absurd to think that that was his, their brother standing before him. So we can see how there could be this inability to kind of recognize him. But don't you see Christ in that reality, though, too? Didn't Christ recognize all of us long before we recognized him? Wherever we were in life, whatever pits we were in, Jesus saw all of our sin, past, present, future, and, and despite it or maybe in spite of it, he, he met us, he pursued us, he reached out to us with his grace and his love to rescue us from hell long before I ever turned my attention towards him. Let's look at verse 9. It says, Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Joseph's like, yeah. No, he said to them, You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take your grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. So again, I mean, there's just, this is just packed with emotion. Because for one thing, you can hear these brothers, and they're kind of trying to paint this story, right? They're, they're, they're bailing water here, man. They're like, we, this, we've got to get this guy to trust us, or else we're in deep trouble. But the whole time, Joseph is Joseph just hearing their lies and just being like, come on, guys. Just be honest, Quit making up this story about what you did with your brother who's standing right in front of you right now. I know what's going on. And some people, maybe really bleeding hearts out there, not me, but others, might think, man, Joseph's kind of being mean, isn't he? Calling them spies. I mean, he knows they're not spies. Putting them in jail. It's a little harsh. 
But let's just consider for a moment some of the potential alternative ways that this story could have gone. So the brothers come. What could Joseph had done to them, keeping in mind what they had done to him? Give me some potential other ways the story could have gone here. Yeah. Okay, could have given them nothing. What else? Could have had them killed, rightfully so. What else could he have done? What's that? Enslaved them, yeah. He could have given them the grain, but then done what? Couldn't he have just said, you know, take this, but I don't want to talk to you guys anymore. He could have just wrote them off, right? And I guess in reality, he could have said, hey, guys, it's me. Don't worry, everything's cool. Let's just pretend like this never happened and just start over. And you laugh, but that's how some people deal with stuff in life. Yeah, exactly. That's ridiculous, isn't it? And it's interesting to put yourself in his shoes here and kind of think about how you might have handled that situation or maybe how you have. Would you have been like, line them up, blindfold them, and get your bows and arrows? Would you have been like, man, they they deserve whatever they get. If it's jail, it's jail. They can starve to death. I don't care. They didn't care about me when they threw me in the bottom of that well and left me for dead. Or maybe because we're not very confrontational, we could have just swept it all under the rug and tried to be nice. And There's lots of different ways that we deal with these things. But Joseph doesn't do any of those things. Instead, he enters into this really long process of restoration, which adds about six chapters to the Bible, right? Because, guys, this was a story of deep betrayal. I mean wounds that were hard to overcome. It had taken years to deal with this, and it was going to take him years to restore it as well. But doesn't God really do the same with us? I mean, on one hand, we can be saved in a moment of repentance and saying a prayer, being baptized. But man, our wounds, the way that we've wounded others, Those things take years to heal. It's a long story of restoration. So Joseph, in the way that he's approaching his brothers in this story, is really showing us the Jesus way, how Jesus was going to be ministering to us as well. Let's look at verse 21. So he's kind of laid out the plan. You guys have all got to go back now and, 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 and bring your brother back. So they said to one another, verse 21, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, when he was in the bottom of that well. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and he began to weep. But then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. 
So their guilty conscience is really starting to kick in now. And a conscience is a really interesting thing, isn't it? it it's, it's the body's, the soul's kind of automatic warning system that's been hardwired into every human by God. And we can kind of deny it or suppress it, but it takes a lot of effort and a lot of drugs to do that sometimes. Not that I've experienced that, I'm just guessing. But guys, even if you do that, if you medicate it or try to escape it or flee from it, our conscience has this unbelievable capacity to gnaw at us, doesn't it? I mean, man, it could be years that go by and it's just like, oh man, (laughs) we remember, we know we're supposed to forgive or we're supposed to confess or whatever it is. In this, in this case, it's, it's been gnawing at them for over 20 years. And it's not until these brothers are just completely needy because of this famine and, and, and all the props have kind of been kicked out from underneath them, the prosperity of their life and all that stuff, before they finally get to the point where they're ready to deal with it and to come clean about the truth about their crimes against Joseph. And God has this um, tendency to make our lives kind of hollow and unsatisfying as long as we continue to live in this charade that we don't have some blood on our hands because of some of the things that we've done and the pain that we've caused to others. And these few verses that we just looked at are, are really the, the key turning point in the story here for them and for us is because the process of restoration really can't begin until we begin to come to terms with the truth of who we are and what we've done and started to become honest about some things. As long as we're kind of hedging it and kind of fudging it And trying to paint ourselves to look a little bit better than we really are, true and lasting restoration is never going to happen. Again, in verse 24, we see Joseph mirroring the heart of Christ, right? He's listening to his brothers have this conversation that they don't understand that he understands. And it says that he's listening to them kind of reveal their guilt And his heart is just torn up over this whole affair. Not only the pain that he's endured because of these choices, he's torn up watching his brothers deal with the guilt and the regret that they've lived with for 20 years now. You see, Jesus is torn up over our sin. He weeps for us. He weeps with us. It hurts him so much to watch us live in just layers and layers of guilt and shame and regret. And he he watches us with our stubborn pride and our jaded perspective on our circumstances. And it's so hard for him to watch because he sees how our unresolved sin 
is affecting our relationship with him and our ability to relate with others. And guys, a turning point in any story, the only way that real healing and reconciliation can happen between us and someone else and really us and God is that we have to get to that place where we actually start having compassion for the other person. No matter how much they've hurt us, we have to have compassion at whatever angle we want to take. Compassion for maybe the pain that was inflicted on them as children or as adults in previous relationships that has caused them to be a person that wounds others. Or just somebody who we know, man, in that moment of saying something or doing something to us that was wounding, that's really not their true character. They were hurt, and they said something hurtful, and, and they probably regret it, but they just don't know how to make it right. And until we can get to a point where we can begin having grace and compassion for them, it's going to make the healing process extremely difficult. When the brothers left Egypt the first time to go back home, there's no way they thought they were ever going to return. Even though their brother Simeon was put in jail and kept, they were going to go home to their dad and they just knew there's no way that he's going to let Benjamin come with us. Now, if you miss part of the story, we have to remember Jacob had four wives. Okay, the one that he loved most, Rachel, she died. She had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And they were the daddy's favorites. Okay, even though they were the 11th and 12th boys born, the last of the line. And he thinks Joseph's already gone. And we saw how he kind of treated Joseph so Benjamin's all they have. And so Benjamin is kind of his favorite, and they're like, man, dad is not going, he'll, he'll leave Simeon to rot in jail, but he's not going to let Benjamin go, right? It's kind of sad. But guys, the direness of their situation is so bad that they, they have to do something. So skip ahead to chapter 43 in verse 15. Forty-three, fifteen. So, so, so the men took gifts and doubled the amount of silver. So last time when he sent them home with grain, they had brought money to pay for it. And without them knowing, Joseph had put the money back in their bags and sent them away. And, and so they thought that, that they were being set up, like that they stole the money. But really, he was just trying to have a blessing to them. So they kind of freaked out and panicked, like, oh, my gosh, you know, we stole this. He's going to use it against us. So now when... When Jacob sends them back with Benjamin, he sends double the amount of silver just to make sure that they understand, hey, this is on the up and up, okay? So he sends the gifts, double the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took them in. To Joseph's house. So Joseph started to see a heart change here in his brothers. They were true to their word. They came back with Benjamin in tow. And Benjamin was Joseph's only full-blooded brother. And he wasn't with them when he was sold into slavery and, and tried to be killed. So he was kind of the one brother that, that hadn't done something horrible to Joseph. And so Joseph hadn't seen his, this beloved brother in 20 years. I mean, he's just torn up with emotion when he, when he finally sees him. And it says that he extends this tremendous amount of grace 
to his brothers when they hadn't done anything to deserve it. He, he invites them in to his house to be guests with him for dinner. And again, because Joseph is a type of Christ, my mind jumps ahead to the Gospels and I'm thinking of those stories where Jesus treats people in ways that they don't deserve. You think of the story of the prodigal son, right, who squanders his father's inheritance, but his father, before he even apologizes, runs out and embraces him. You think about the the picture of Peter meeting the resurrected Jesus after his denial and Jesus embracing him and taking him back in and restoring that relationship. And I mean, we can put our own selves into those stories too, right? Uh, Of being extended grace in ways that we never deserved. Scriptures come to mind for me like Galatians 6.1 where Paul says this, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. I'm also reminded of Romans chapter 2, where Paul says this, It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Restore one another gently. Your kindness leads us to repentance. He's showing us the way in which relationships need to be restored. And and as you look at Joseph's grace and you think about Jesus' grace, it's just overwhelming what's extended to us in ways that we don't deserve. Look at verse 18. It says, Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, We were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us, overpower us, and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. (laughs) Of all things. So... So you can see, like, these were country bumpkins we're dealing with here, all right? So they went up to Joseph's steward, and they spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took them in into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they'd heard that they were there to eat with him. These brothers are skeptical, aren't they? Right? Why is this guy being so nice to us? Is this a trap? Is he really going to kill us when he comes in? I remember uh, I used to be on Young Life staff, and I remember taking kids to Young Life camp sometimes. And, um, you know, kids went to camp for all kinds of reasons. And some kids went to camp just because their friends were going or because their boyfriend or girlfriend were going, and they really weren't that interested in the whole Jesus stuff. You know, and you could kind of tell, especially early in the week, kids, they kind of kept their distance. Um, When it came cabin time, when you're talking about stuff, they don't share anything because they're kind of wondering, man, I know this Jesus guy. What does he want from me? I'm on to him. I have this strange feeling that he's going to tell me that I can't drink anymore and I can't smoke weed and I can't fool around my girlfriend and I really like doing all those things and I'm not down with it. 
I had a kid tell me that one time at camp. I really like smoking weed and having sex. And I was like, man, thank you for your honesty. I'm sad for you, but man, I props for your honesty. But I remember trying to communicate with these kids. Guys, it's not about what you give up. It's about what you receive from God, his grace and love and forgiveness that he has from you, from a father who loves you just as you are. You don't have to change first. But it's hard to convince people of your good intentions when they have a guilty conscience, isn't it? Let's look at verse 26. It says, when Joseph came home, they presented him the gifts that they had bought, they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He, he asked them how they were, and then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out. And controlling himself said, serve the food. So the brothers keep bowing down to Joseph. And in fact, verse 28 implies that they are like literally laying on the floor, on the ground, completely just like as humble as you can possibly be before Joseph. Why are they doing this? What's their motive Feel free to answer. Yes, Nicholas. Fear? Okay. Fear of what? Okay. So fear of what they might do to him. So in one way, it might be just a way to acknowledge his power and authority. Okay. The control that he had. What else could be a potential motive? Guilt? Okay. Yeah. Could be their guilt. Okay. Why? Okay. They're done. They're ready to do whatever they need to do to restore the relationship. I mean, one thing that I thought about, you know, I mean, yes, they were grateful for his generosity. I mean, he was providing for them. Yes, maybe to honor his high position in the Egyptian government, but more than anything, their livelihood was at the complete mercy of Joseph. I mean, their need brought them to their their bellies. Their need. They knew if he says the word, we live. If he doesn't, we die. It's that desperate of a situation. So what's our posture here this morning? Why are we here? 
Some of us might be here because we acknowledge, man, God is holy and righteous, and we are just, you know, people that we need to give him his attention due. Others of us might be here and we might be thinking, you know what, God, I'm, I'm just really grateful for what you've done in my life. I think a lot of folks come to church and they think, you know what, my life's pretty good. I'm pretty good. God, can you make my good life better? But what's lacking in that perspective? It's a poverty of spirit, right? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know their need. Here's the truth. We don't need Jesus more. We need to be more awakened to our need for Jesus. What's the difference between those two statements? Or two parts of that statement? Yeah. One's about me, the other's about we. Okay, what do you mean by that? Okay, one is my self-centered, the other is we. We in what way? We in what way is that um, Jesus is our way. Okay. Good, yeah. One is about focusing on me, the other is about focusing on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't need Jesus at 75%, do we? Or 50% or 80% or 85%. We always need Jesus 100% of the time. We cannot deal with our own sin problem. The only way we can be redeemed, forgiven, go to heaven, have healthy, whole relationships is with 100% of Jesus invading our lives and taking it over. We don't need more of Jesus. We need to be awakened to how much we need Jesus. Right? Our need. (laughs) Not just when we come to church on Sunday morning, but every day we wake up, are we aware of the fact that today I need Jesus as much as I needed him yesterday, the day before that, as much as I'm going to need him tomorrow, 20 years from now, and 30 years from now, no matter how holy I feel like I am or how much I feel like I've grown in my faith or how wise I am or how many scriptures I know or whatever, your need for him never changes. We need to be awakened to that. All right, last few verses for today. Verse 32, they served him, Joseph, by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who were with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians, which that is just bizarre. (laughs) Joseph is second in command in the country, yet he can't eat at the other table with the other Egyptians because he's a Hebrew. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's, so they feasted and drank freely with him. So Joseph is continuing to play with their minds. He still hasn't revealed who he is, right? 
But he lines them up. He seats his brothers from oldest to youngest in front of him. One through 11. The odds, I was reading this week, the odds of somebody being able to do that is one in 40 million. So you can imagine those guys are just like, what is going on? (laughs) Who is this guy? How does he know so much about us? And they're probably getting wigged out, right? And then he goes over to Benjamin and gives him five times as much food. What is Joseph doing? He's testing them, isn't he? The whole reason that they got themselves in this mess to begin with is because they could not handle the favoritism that their father showed him. So he wants to find out, have their hearts really changed? If I show some favoritism to Benjamin over here, how are they going to respond to that? Are they going to be the same old guys they've always been, or are they going to be different now? And God tests our heart as well. In order for true restoration to happen with him or with other people, we have to be at a place where we've relinquished our perceived rights to bitterness and revenge and pride and judgment, malice, envy, jealousy, whatever we want to feel like we deserve to feel towards somebody else who's harmed us. As long as we're continuing to come with one of those emotions at the forefront, we're never going to be able to reconcile with someone. Only with a humble and open and repentant and responsive heart can God bring about healing in our lives. And it's a process. For these guys, it took 20 years, and they were kind of dragged into it. They didn't go into this by choice, right? Necessity dictated that we have to face our old junk. There's lots of different ways that God can bring us there, kicking and screaming, or we could choose to move forward in that way, but he always wants to bring about healing. And this is one of those stories, guys, as we wrap up this morning. Thanks for hanging in there with me. We had a lot to cover, so I appreciate that. Um, I'm not going to tell you what you should take away from this, because there's probably a hundred different angles of ways that God could speak to you. Whatever that maybe one thing that kind of grabbed a hold of your heart today, I want you to just kind of wrestle with that. You know, don't try to swallow the whole thing. But man, was there one thing that God spoke to you today? And is there an action? Is there a next step that would be healthy for you to take in maybe how you are dealing with some past hurts or ways you've hurt people to restore that relationship. There's a lot of good lessons there on how to go about doing that in a way that's pleasing and honoring to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Joseph. We thank you that he's uh, just such a model of you. And he's just, he's living out your ministry through this story. And Lord, I know for me, that piece that, that really spoke to me is just how his heart was torn up for them before they even confessed their guilt. You know, it hurt him to see his brothers living with this shame and regret. God, we've all been wounded and we've all wounded others. <laughs> but you still accepted us and loved us and pursued us before we 
made a move towards you. Your Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we'd done anything to deserve your grace, you made the first move and offered your life so that we might have a way to be right with you. Who are we to withhold that from anyone else? God, deal with our pride. Deal with our stubbornness, our jealousy, our our bitterness. Take it out. Take it away. (laughs) Make us people who spread everywhere the aroma of Christ as we go about our life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close?